Uh, as Trev mentioned, my name's Ben, and it is my privilege most weeks to proclaim the Word of God to you, and I'm thankful for that privilege, and I'm excited to do it again this morning. So you can uh, turn in your Bible to 1 Peter. Uh, we started a series in uh, Peter's first epistle, and we're going to keep going. The 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 3 to 9. It's a heavy, heavy hitter. This has got some good stuff in there, man. I don't know if you're ready for it. You ready? You got it? All right, listen as I read. This is God's word to us. This is God speaking to us. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Church, say amen. 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 Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And Lord, would you set our eyes on that hope now And assure us of it in Christ Jesus. Nourish us, feed us, sanctify us in the truth. O Lord, your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James 1-2. Rejoice and be glad when others revile you and persecute and utter all kind of evil against you. Matthew 5-12. Rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Romans 5.3 Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. 1 Peter 4.13 If you've read the Bible for any amount of time, you know that constantly the Bible is telling us to rejoice in your sufferings. Huh? Rejoice in your sufferings. Now, if you were here last week, I told you that one of the reasons, that one of the main reasons that Christianity explodes in the first couple centuries of the church is that the Christians were suffering with such poise and such grace and such joy. You know, regularly Christians were going violently to their deaths, but they went singing. And it caused unbelievers to marvel and ask, Why? What what was it that they had? And none of the other religions or philosophies came anywhere close to providing the resources and the equipment that Christians seem to have 
to face suffering, even unimaginable suffering, with joy. And so history is filled with stories of Christians down through the ages who have suffered unimaginable pain and hardship and tragedy and persecution and have done it with an unshakable joy. How do you respond to suffering, brothers and sisters? What happens in your heart when you are faced with hardship? Do you you frantically scramble looking for any way out of it? Do you run to chosen distractions to take your mind off it? Do you just look for some way to numb yourself to it? Do you grumble and complain and lash out? Do you grow angry and resentful? Or do you find in your heart an unwavering peace and an unshakable joy? Well, as you know, Peter is writing this letter to Christians who are increasingly experiencing suffering, pain, hardship. He's writing to comfort and encourage and equip them in the face of that suffering. And Peter himself, you know, is no stranger to suffering. You just read through the book of Acts. But in the face of it, Peter's joyous declaration is this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's goal for his audience, and with the Spirit's help, my goal for you this morning, is that by the end of this sermon, no matter what suffering you are facing, that your hearts would be crying out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That that you would become, by God's grace, more like these Christians of old who face their suffering singing and praising and worshiping God. And Peter gives us the key. Peter tells us how that happens. Do you want to be the kind of person that faces your suffering and moves through your suffering with an unshakable and unwavering joy? Peter gives us the key, and what is it? It's a hope. It's a promise. It is a certain coming reality that all Christians are assured of receiving and experiencing. And when you have this hope that Peter is going to tell us about, you will be able to face any suffering that the world would throw at you with an unshakable joy. Not even death will be able to threaten the joy that flows from this hope. And so this morning we discover three things about this hope. You ready? Here it is a very complicated outline. It's very complex. Here it is. These are the three things we discover about this hope. We discover what it is, why you need it, and how you get it. What it is, why you need it, and how you get it. So what is it? What is this hope? I'm telling you that Peter is holding out this hope that if you have it, unshakable joy. Nothing the world can throw at you can threaten this joy. What is that hope? The last question of the New City Catechism captures the hope of every Christian really well. It says, uh, it asks this question first. What hope does everlasting life hold for us? The answer, it reminds us that this present fallen world is not all there is. Amen? Soon we will live with and enjoy God forever in the new city, in the new heaven, in the new earth, where we will be fully and forever freed from all sin and will inhabit renewed resurrection bodies in a renewed, restored creation. Amen? 
For 2,000 years, Christians have put their hope in the testimony of Scripture that a day is coming soon when God will punish all evil, when he will make all things new, and that his people will know ever-increasing enjoyment in his presence for all eternity. In our passage, Peter describes this as a living hope. A living hope. So what does Peter mean when he describes this as a living hope? Well, that's a lot of things, but I'm going to highlight it under sort of three categories. It means it's certain, it's real, and it's wonderful. It's a living hope because it's certain. When the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't use it the way we often use the word hope. Uh, kids, kids, uh, when you have a birthday, who's got, any, anyone got a birthday coming up? You do. Okay. <laughs> all right, well, this could be for all of us, including the kids. Kids, you just had a birthday. When you got a birthday, you might say something like, I hope I get a X, a bike, you know, some kind of new game, a new football, whatever it is. I hope, but when we use, when we're saying that, we're saying, I don't know if I will, but I am wishing that I get a certain gift. Or, or maybe we might say, I hope the Eagles beat the Patriots this afternoon, but we don't know. But in the Bible, the word hope refers to a certain future reality. A certain future reality. Not, not a pipe dream, not wishful thinking, but a future reality that is certain. It's so certain that Peter says this reality is being kept in heaven for you right now. And it's a salvation that is ready to be revealed. It's not in question. It's not a maybe. It's not if everything works out right. The Christian hope is certain, rock solid, concrete, without question, a coming reality. It's why Peter begins by saying we have been born again to a living hope. You see, what is the goal of birth? Think about birth for a minute. What is the goal of birth? Babies are not just born for the sake of being born. They are born to live, to grow, and to increasingly experience life. And Peter says, so it is with the new birth. God by his spirit, has mercifully brought you to spiritual life through his son, Jesus Christ. And the inevitable consequence, listen to me, the inevitable consequence of that new birth is eternal life. It is the natural and unalterable conclusion of the redemption that Christ has won for his people. You were dead in your sins, but in Christ you have been brought to life for eternal life. You see? You see, how can Christians down through the ages and all around the world face incredible suffering and joy? It's not because they have some pipe dream. It's not because they have some remote potential hope. Now, if you talk to psychologists, by the way, they will tell you that you can, there's actually a pretty good bang for your buck, even with a potential hope. Even if there's some possibility that things can get better in the, in the future, that will actually help you move forward in life. 
how much more so than when you, when you have not a potential reality, but a certain hope. When you know what's coming, how much more then will you be uh, strengthened with joy to press on and to move forward? It's why these people could face death singing, could face suffering with joy, because they knew what was coming. Do you? The first thing Peter wants you to know about this living hope is that it's certain. But it's also real. It's real. I don't mean the difference between fact and fiction when I say real. I mean, of course, uh, the Christian hope is, is not fiction. It's a fact. But what I'm meaning to say is that it's not abstract. It's not theoretical. It's not like a state of being. Be, be, beyond human comprehension and, and hard to imagine, absolutely, yes. The, the, how can we you know, get our minds around the fullness of this living hope? But it's not just an idea. It, it's a hope that you can touch, that you can smell, that you can taste that you can see it's a it's a real world you hear what i'm saying it's a real world look at how peter describes this living hope he says in verse 3 according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading he says our hope is an inheritance you know what an inheritance is right Yes? You know what an inheritance is? Okay. They are the material assets left behind that uh, someone that is deceased distributes or has someone distribute according to his will. Now, I want you to just imagine for a second. Imagine for a second uh, that you have been written into the will of someone very, very wealthy. And you come to the office of the lawyer that's going to read out the will and, and you're expecting to inherit a massive fortune. And as he reads out this will, and there you are, and you're so excited, I can't wait, what am I going to get? And as he reads out the, the will, this is what you hear. And to you has been left a symbolic fortune of $100 million. And to you has been left a figurative 30-room mansion. And also a very healthy metaphorical stock portfolio. You see, and an inheritance is only an inheritance if it's real, if you can hold it, if you can touch it. And when Peter says you have a living hope and inheritance, what he's saying is that there is a reality coming that is real. It's real. Brothers and sisters, the coming eternal reality for God's people is not some nebulous, formless, shapeless experience of bliss. We read earlier, you remember in Isaiah 65, we read about this reality. It's a, it's a new heaven. And a new earth, the complete restoration and renewal of this world where we will build and plant and work, where, where we will sing and dance and hug. It is the promise of a perfect world where we will know God and one another without the corruption of sin is the expectation of an everlasting life where everything that is sad and evil in this world is done away with and everything good is infinitely enhanced and perfected. You see, how can you endure suffering? How can you endure the suffering of chronic pain? 
pain as your physical body begins to deteriorate? Isn't it because you know a day is coming when you're going to get a glorified body, a real body with hands and feet and hair and eyes and ears? How, how can you face the suffering of the loss of loved ones? Right here they are in your presence and then they're gone because there's a day coming in Jesus when all those who have trusted in him will be reunited for real. How, how can you bear the suffering of real injustice? Right when, when, real, when you look around at the world or when there's injustice that's aimed at you, how can you bear the suffering of that? Because you know a day is coming when God is going to mete out justice for real. Not just in some like idealistic, you know, amorphous way. How can you bear the suffering of financial loss? What happens in the day that you're just financially ruined? How can you bear that suffering? Because you know you have inheritance, an inheritance that's coming for real. Brothers and sisters, I, listen, I know you can't see it now, and most of the time it seems so far off, right? But there is a country beyond the shores. There is a land beyond the Jordan. There is an eternity on the other side of this mortal life where what we will be and how we will live is too radiantly beautiful to even comprehend. Where we will see the Lord face to face. And that's not just an idea. Brothers and sisters, a day is coming when you will look into his face and you will see his eyes, and he will see your eyes, and you will hear his voice. You'll hear the kindness in his voice. You'll hear the warmth and the tenderness and the power in his voice. You'll hear it. You'll see it. You will feel the warmth of his embrace. You'll hear his voice. And every tear of sadness will be wiped away with his finger touching your cheek. You see, when you know down to your bones that that day is coming, what can make you despair here? It's real, it's certain, and it's wonderful. Peter tries to describe the indescribable but the best he can do is tell us not what it will be, but what it won't be. You notice that? He says our living hope is imperishable, as in it won't perish. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's a, a never-ending hope, an eternal future. You see, here's the, here's the thing. Everyone knows what, it, what it's like to look forward to something. Kids, how many of you are already looking forward to next summer? <laughs> What, what, what are you looking forward to? Maybe it's a nap this afternoon, a good meal, time with your family, whatever it is. It may be really, really good, great when you finally get it, but the inescapable reality of all of our hopes in this world is that it comes to an end. Whatever it is, it may be amazing, but eventually it's going to end. Do you ever, you ever read a book? Or you watch a movie and then you get to the end of it and you're just sad it's over. 
like you just want it to keep going forever and ever. That's a little picture of our lives, just moving from one thing to the next, trying to suck out the enjoyment of things until they inevitably come to an end. But, But it's even more devastating than that because the Bible says our hearts are built on hope. Hope is the infrastructure of our hearts. There's something your heart hopes in more than anything. Right now, there's something your heart is hoping in more than anything, and, and that's the thing that you, you, you say to yourselves, if I could just have that thing, then everything would be okay in my life. Then I would be happy. Then I would be satisfied. Then I would be content. Now, maybe it's money. You know, if you just had more money, then finally everything would be okay. Maybe it's a relationship or a spouse or, or children. Maybe it's a better physique, a more fulfilling job, a nicer retirement portfolio, a bigger home, a larger social media following. What is it? Whatever it is, the point is, in this world, whatever that thing is, it's going to end. It's going to pass away. It's going to stop. It's going to be taken from you. It's a bad bet. You're going to lose it. That's the trouble with hoping in things in this world. You work and you work and you work to grab it. And then as soon as you have it, it's slipping through your fingers like sand. But, but, But not this hope. Not this hope that I'm telling you about. This this hope is imperishable. It lasts. It's never ending. It doesn't go away. And Peter says it's undefiled. That is, it isn't tainted at all by sin and the evil of this world. we, We can't even begin to get our minds around that because even the best things that we experience in this life are tainted by sin and corruption and evil and frustration and imperfection. That's just the air we breathe. But Peter says, this is a hope that is spotless. It's perfect. You, you see, what our sin has done is it's corrupted everything. We, we can't imagine what it would be like to see through to a world that is unaffected by sin. You know, I have terrible vision. I, I have terrible vision, and so periodically... I have to go to the eye doctor, and if you've been to the eye doctor, you know they sit you in the chair, and they put the machine up to your eyes, and they start clicking through the lenses. Like, is it clearer now? Is it clearer now? Is it clearer now? And they're trying to, you know, correct your vision. And even as Christians, your your vision is so blurred by the sin that remains in you and the sin that we experience in living in a world corrupted down to its core Paul says it this way, for, for now we see through a mirror dimly. When we look at the world, or when we try to imagine what this coming hope, it's as if we're looking through a mirror, it's look, looking through glass dimly, covered in smudges. But one day, brothers and sisters, your blurry eyes are going to close in death, and they're going to awaken with new resurrected eyes. And you are going to see clearly a world perfected, renewed, restored, with not even the the faintest trace of sin or evil. And then what? Then what? Finally, we'll have what we've been longing for all these years, the thing our hearts have hoped for all these years. And then what? I wonder if you have what I have. I have a little switch in my heart from years of experience that says, don't get too excited because eventually the hype will wear off. 
Do you have that switch? Anytime you're hoping in something, you're like, don't get too excited because you're going to get it, but then eventually it's not going to be that good anymore. Kids don't have that switch yet. You ever notice that? <laughs> Kids don't have that switch. Like they, there's something they're hoping in and they literally think, if I just get this thing, it will provide for me eternal joy and happiness. There is nothing that will be able to shake my joy in this thing. They don't have that switch yet, but they'll get it. I, I taught uh, history and economics last year. In, in, in the world of economics, you know what it's called? Any, anyone into economics? No one's into economics. Economics is the worst. Uh, in, in the world of economics, they call it diminishing marginal utility. You ever hear that term? Diminishing marginal utility. Here's what diminishing marginal utility is. You ready? How many of you like pizza? Okay, great. Tell me which bite is better, the first bite or the sixth bite? First bite's always better. And every successive bite after that is nowhere near as good as the first one. It's diminishing marginal utility. Every additional unit, your satisfaction goes boop, 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 fading, 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 fading. But do you see what Peter's saying? He's saying this hope this, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. This hope is increasing marginal utility. Every day that goes by will be increasing joy. The joy you experience in knowing and loving God and discovering more of who he is will pale in comparison to the next day when you get to discover even more and more and more. You will never come to an end. Not only will you come to an end, but it will be ever increasing into infinity. We can't get our minds around that, but we know what it's not like. We know what it's like to take a bite of pizza and then get to your third piece. You'll be like, this isn't even good anymore. I don't even want another piece of pizza. I'm so full. I feel sick. But not in glory. You will never get sick of it. You'll never grow tired or weary of it. It will be increasingly joyous and exciting and thrilling for all eternity. Jonathan Edwards, 18th century uh, pastor, wrote prolifically on heaven. This is probably his greatest contribution that we will experience this increasing joy. He says this. He says, their knowledge will increase to eternity. And if their knowledge, doubtless their holiness. For as they increase in the knowledge of God and the works of God, the more they will see of his excellency, the more they will love him, and the more they love God, the more they delight and happiness they will have in him. And he goes on to reason that if God is infinite, then so is the satisfaction and pleasure that will come from beholding him by uh, moment by passing moment. Every passing moment will be increasing joy in knowing God. Now when you know that, and when you know it's real and it's certain, you can face any suffering the world throws at you. So that's what it is. It's like my whole sermon. That's what it is. Here's why you need it. Christianity is both a backward and forward-looking faith. We look back on the finished work of Christ and the cross, and his resurrection compels us to look forward to the hope of our own resurrection. And this hope is absolutely essential to the Christian life and specifically to suffering well. And here's why. There's a lot we could say, but let me give you two reasons that come from this text. The first reason, your future hope it determines your present experience. Your future hope determines your present experience. Do you hear what I'm saying? Your future hope, watch the words coming out of my mouth. Your future hope determines your present experience. 
That's what Peter's getting at in verse 8. In verse 7, it's by faith that we have this hope. And he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In other words, though your present experience might make you think that Christ is not for him, you trust in him. And so, even amidst your suffering, the hardship and the trial, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Your faith in Christ and the future hope that he has secured for you determines how you experience your present. You see, in the end, it's not really, I know we think this, I know we feel this. In the end, it's not really your circumstances that determine your present experience. That's what we think, that's what we feel. But it's not. It's directly tied to our hope. And let me prove it to you. Are you ready? Let me give you this little thought experiment okay pretend that I give a job to you and another person are you ready for the job here's the job for one whole year every single working day you're going to come and you're going to dig a hole that's your job you're going to show up for 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 whatever it is I think there's 260 working days in 260 days you're going to come up and you're going to dig a hole and you're just going to dig every day in the heat blistered hands sweating you're digging a hole. It's miserable. And to the other person, I say, I'm going to pay you $50,000. At the end of your year of digging a hole, I'm going to pay you $50,000. The living wage, you'll be able to live. $50,000. Okay? But to you, I say, at the end of your year, I'm going to pay you a billion dollars. You dig every day, you get a billion dollars. Your experience of digging that hole is going to be very different than the experience of the guy digging the hole who's getting $50,000. You're going to be digging that hole like a dog on the beach who's having the best day of his life. You want to know why? Because you're making $4 million every day. Because there is a, there is a hope laid up for you that is beyond your imagination, that is so filled. You're thinking, you know, this guy's over here and he's sweating it out and he's, gonna, he's getting frustrated, $50,000. I'm like, you know, like this isn't worth it. He's probably going to quit. And you're like, what are you talking about? There's a billion dollars at the end of this thing. You're digging, you know, you're like one of those little, uh, you know, Snow Whites, you know, whistling while you work. You're going. But but why is that? It's because your hope determines your present experience. And this is how it works. See, you can have joy now because you know of the, in, the, the imperishable joy, the unfading, certain, real joy that is laid up for you. That joy bleeds back into now. Now, what I'm telling you is that that hope laid up for you that hope that, that we have laid up for you, it makes a billion dollars look like the lint in your pocket. It's nothing. And when you know that hope, you can move through suffering with an unshakable joy. That's reason number one. Your hope determines your present experience. This is why you need this hope. Here's the second reason. Your future hope determines your response to your own suffering and the suffering of others. Your, your future hope your hope determines your response to your own and other suffering. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard this saying, uh, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. You ever hear that? Or, or maybe you've encountered the argument that Christians are people who just stick their head in the sand when it comes to real issues in the world because they're just waiting for heaven. 
Well, it turns out the exact opposite is true. It is precisely because of our hope that Christians are, of all people, best equipped to deal with suffering in this world. You see, people apart from Christ, people apart from this kind of hope, they deal with suffering in one of three ways. They either deaden themselves, distract themselves, or deliver themselves. Try to, anyway. Some people look out at the world and at their own life and they feel so hopeless at the suffering that they see that they just numb themselves to it. They, they go to any kind of substance or destructive behavior or anything that they can to deaden the pain, to numb the pain of suffering that they are experiencing. Others look out and they see suffering as an inconvenience to their own happiness. Right? Suffering is just in my way. Like, don't, don't bring me down with that. And they really do stick their head in the sand. And they chase down every little pleasure they can find to distract themselves from the uncomfortable reality that something is really not right in the world. And then there are those who look out at their own life and they look at the world and they say to themselves, I can fix that. Like if we work hard enough, we can fix this. We can deliver ourselves. If we work hard enough to get better education and better government and better social programs and better medicine, we can fix this. But eventually they grow tired and disillusioned because for all their work, the sad music of a world that has gone bad drones on, as one pastor said. But look again at what Peter says in verse 6. He says, in this, that is in this living hope, you rejoice though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. The Christians are not immune from suffering, nor are they spared the pain of living in a world that is broken and characterized by suffering. But do you know, notice how Christians are described at the same time both as rejoicing and grieving? They're not just rejoicing. While they are in the world, they are both rejoicing and grieving. Did you notice that? You see, what Christians have that no one else has because of their hope is the equipment both to grieve over suffering and to rejoice in suffering. They know this world is broken by sin and they are really grieved to their hearts. Because they know the hope that's coming, they have the courage to really look at the suffering in the world, to really see it to really be grieved by it. They know its source, and so they really are saddened by it. They are not cold, dispassionate, apathetic people that ignore suffering. They don't stick their heads in the sand. They, they serve a suffering Savior who came into the world to relieve suffering, and so they get, to the, they get to work in the world to be the hands and feet of Jesus trying to relieve suffering wherever they are, but at the same time. So you hear me saying this, they're grieving, they're, they're, at, they're in the world trying to bring relief to suffering, because that's exactly what their Savior came into the world to do, to relieve us of our ultimate suffering. But at the same time, they also know that suffering in this world will never finally be vanquished until that day when Christ returns, so they don't throw their hands up when things stay bad. They don't get frustrated when things are still bad because they know the kind of world that they live in. They know it's not the new heaven and it's not the new earth yet, that that day has yet to come. 
And so they keep faithfully laboring to display God's goodness with their eyes set on that day when all suffering is cast away, when all sin is overpowered, and when death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. You you will only be able to really grieve over suffering and rejoice in suffering at the same time when you have this kind of hope. When you have this hope. So that's what it is. That's why you need it. How do you get it? How do you get it? Peter tells us straight up. Verse 3, he says, According to his great mercy, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's wonderful that this hope exists. That it's real. But, if there's no way for you to get it, it's the worst news you've ever heard in the world. If I'm telling you there is this hope of a coming world and a reality that's perfected, but there's no way for you to get it, then I'll just go home. There's no hope for us. But what Peter tells us is because of God's great mercy, there's a way for us to have this hope. The good news is that God in his abundant and astounding mercy has made a way for us to have this hope. Not through anything you have done or will do or could do, but through Christ's death and resurrection. See, the gospel is that God saw us and knew us in our suffering. Suffering brought about by our own sin. You see, we are not the poor victims of some pitiless system that oppresses us without reason. No, the the testimony of Scripture is that the world was plunged into darkness and corruption, which brought about all suffering and death into this world. And that means you and I are not guiltless victims of the suffering in this world. We are the cause of it. We are the problem. It's our sin, it's our rebellion against God, our idolatry that has made this world and our lives what they are and filled with suffering and chaos and corruption and disease. And you need to understand something that that God would have. You You need to know this in the core of your being, that God would have been just to look at us in our suffering and say, give them what they deserve, they brought it on themselves. He would be just to say that. He would be right to say that. But instead, he shows breathtaking mercy and sends his son into a world of suffering. And Jesus willingly subjects himself to a life of suffering. He doesn't come into uh, the world to be pampered and served, but he comes to serve us, to suffer and to suffer and die in your place. Don't you see, God God comes to you now by his word and he holds out to you a future hope of glory and joy and blessing in the fullness of his presence. And how can he do that? How can God do that? Because what he held out to his son was the future that you deserved. Even though he lived a life of perfect obedience and righteousness, when Jesus came into the Garden of Gethsemane, his father held out to him the cup of suffering. He said, if you would deliver them from the eternal, ultimate suffering that they deserve, you must take it on yourself. You must bear it. You must drink their cup. 
And brothers and sisters, the good news and the ground of our hope is this, fa- is this fact that he drank the cup of our suffering all the way down to the bottom. H- have you ever wondered this? Listen, I told you in the beginning, and history has borne out this fact, that Christians over the centuries have gone to their deaths singing. Awful, unimaginably painful deaths. They've gone courageously to their deaths singing. But do you see your Savior here in the garden cowering in the dust? Do you think it's that the Christians that came after Jesus were more courageous? That they were more joyful? That they had more of a spine than Jesus did when they faced their death? You know Jesus is in the garden shedding tears, sweating drops of blood, cowering before the cup that his Father holds out to him. Why is that? Because the suffering that Jesus experiences on the cross is infinitely more than any Christian will ever have to bear. Because on the cross and in that cup, what his father is holding out to him is infinite suffering. Abandonment, forsakenness. On the cross, he is crushed into the dust by God's wrath. But our hope is a living hope because Christ did not remain dead, but he rose up from the grave. The first fruits of the resurrection. We read that in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. The beginning of the harvest, the first signal of the renewed world to come so that all who are united to him will share in his resurrection and in his living hope. And how, how are you united to Christ and therefore united to this hope? It is by faith. You see, what is it that fills these saints with, with, with joy? It says they rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What is that thing? It's that they have somehow, is it that they have somehow found a way to muster up enough godliness or enough piety or enough morality and have somehow found a way to make sufficient payment for their own sins that now they have made themselves worthy of this hope? No, it is because they believe in him. It is because they trust him. It's because they see that they have no hope in and of themselves but they believe that God's mercy was poured out for sinners, that God's mercy was poured out for them, that Christ suffered for them. This is what unites us to Christ, that we cast ourselves upon him, trusting that when he took that cup and drank that cup of suffering, of eternal suffering, of infinite suffering, that he was drinking my cup, that he was drinking your cup. By faith, we take hold of Christ, and by faith, we become partakers in this hope. And do you know what the result of this faith is? You know what the result of this faith is? What Peter says is the result of this faith is is, it's almost too beautiful to even say it. Look at verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says that it is so that your faith, listen to me, please do not miss this. 
It is so that your faith will result in praise and glory and honor on the day when Christ returns. Now we see those three words back to back, praise, glory, honor, and we instinctively think that the object of this praise is Jesus Christ, and rightly so. And he will be the object of praise and glory and honor. But here, look at this text. Here, do you know who the object of that praise is? It's you. So that your faith will result in praise and glory and honor. This is our hope, brothers and sisters. This is at the center of what your soul is aching and longing for. This is the thing that has the power, listen to me, this is the thing that has the power to undo all the pain and suffering you are experiencing and will experience in this life. It's when on that day you come into the presence of God. Can you just picture it with me for just a moment? Try and picture this day with me. It is the day when you come into the presence of God. And you know to the very core of your being how incomplete, how sinful, and how unworthy you are. Knowing that you deserve to be condemned and cast out forever. But wonder of wonders. What you hear on that day is the delighted voice of your heavenly Father celebrating over you showering you with praise and honor and glory. Can can, can you imagine that day? That day when the scriptures say the eternal God will rejoice over you with gladness, when he will sing over you with loud exultation. Our faith is so weak and our trust is so fragile, and yet in mercy Christ's work is so great. And so he looks upon us like a father filled with joy and pride, watching his children take their first step. They're bumping into stuff. They're falling all over the place. But the father couldn't be happier. And so it will be on that day when God looks upon us in our imperfect life, bumbling around, messing everything up, and yet made perfect in Christ. He will delight over us with a joy that will consume all of your suffering. You can't imagine what that day is going to be like. Brothers and sisters, you have the delight of your father right now in Jesus because on the cross, Jesus bore your curse. And one day soon, you will know the experience of that in its fullness. You say, but but what if I falter? What if my faith is too weak? It's not the greatness of your faith that saves you, but it is the greatness of your Savior. And so don't forget that not only is God keeping your inheritance for you in heaven, he is keeping you for your inheritance. He's not only keeping your inheritance for you, he's keeping you for your inheritance. Peter says you are being guarded by God's power through faith for this salvation. Your hope is sure, and you can know you'll make it. And all the blessings of this living hope will be yours, not ultimately because of your strength in holding on to him, but because of his strength in holding on to you. This is our hope. And when you knew it, like Peter knows it, when you know it, like Peter knew it, like these Christians he was writing to knew it, like all the Christians who throughout 
history went to their death singing. When you know it like them, you will say with Peter. See, all what happens when God, when we show up and God showers upon us glory and blessing and honor and we hear God praising and we hear him singing and exulting over us, what will our response be? Will our response be like, yeah, that's right. You know it. No, what will our response be? It'll be the banner over this entire text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That will be our response. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you're there, when you're there, when you have your eyes set on this hope and your heart is bubbling up with blessed be the name of the Lord, there is no pain, no suffering, not even death that will be able to take your joy. You see, this is what happens. I'll close with this. This is what happens in the face of suffering when you are filled with this hope. When you, when you stare into the face of even the worst suffering, you allow it to drive you deeper into this hope. And so, so what you do is you look at your sufferings and you say, but my sins are forgiven. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You say, My debt has been fully paid. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You say, I have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You say, nothing can separate me from his love. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You say, I am going to receive my internal inheritance soon. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You say, a new heavens and a new earth are prepared for me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You say, I will receive a new resurrected and a glorified body when I'll feel no pain and I'll see perfectly. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You say, on that day, every tear will be wiped away. He'll wipe it away from me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You'll say, all sin will be destroyed and finally the war inside will be over. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You'll say, every longing, I know a day is coming when every longing and yearning will be satisfied in him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You say, because I will see him face to face. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You'll say, he will sing over me with loud exultation and rejoicing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You'll say, he will, he will give ever increasing joy and love in the knowledge of his presence. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He will be my God and I will be his son. Blessed be the name of the Lord. All pain, all suffering, all death will be be vanquished forever. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I will live for all eternity in unending, unfading joy in God with my brothers and sisters. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Christ will receive all blessing and honor and praise. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen? Brothers and sisters, it's certain. It's real. It's going to be wonderful beyond our imaginations. Do you know that hope? Do you have that hope? Because if you do, there's no suffering this world can throw at you that can shake it. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for a living hope. We thank you for an unshakable joy in knowing what is to come. That it's not some pipe dream, that it's not wishful thinking, but that Christ is coming back and a new earth and a new heaven is coming down when we will see the Lord face to face. Encourage us in this hope. Make us steadfast in this hope. Comfort us in this hope and help us to live our lives inexplicably looking forward to that day 
in such a way that the people around us would ask, what is the reason for our hope? And we pray that you would do it for the sake of your glory and our joy in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.